Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reformed, Puritan literature, reading especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, good day and welcome to another Reformers Bookcast. We are bookcasting today from the Australian Banner of Truth Conference in the beautiful northern suburbs of Sydney. Uh, if you could see out the window here, you'd see the, the coastline of North New South Wales, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. It is. And we have with us this morning Jeff Kingswood. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. My pleasure. Uh, now, Jeff, what brings you to Banner of Truth Conference? I'm here because I'm a, in my capacity as a trustee of the Banner. I uh, was asked by the other trustees to uh, come and represent the trustees to uh, see what's happening here at this conference and to discuss uh, with the men here how we can better serve the community, how we can encourage men to attend the conference and uh, what, what benefits Banner has been to people and, and how we can improve that. Okay. So I, I'm here both to... Uh, to speak at the conference, but also to hear from the men uh, what they would like to see in the future. And so, a Banner, Banner of Truth is a, a book publisher. It is. And it's been around for some time, I believe. Since the late 1950s. Okay, started by... Martin Ian Murray. Ian Murray? Yes. Under Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? He had something well, to do with it? Ian Murray was serving as the associate pastor at, uh, at uh, Westminster Chapel, and he was teaching a course and a history course, and was citing a number of, of Puritan references. And uh, one gentleman in the, the course said, why can't we get these books? Where are they? And Ian Murray said, well, they're, they're out of print. They're ancient, hard to get. And uh, so they started conspiring, and they worked together to begin publishing these books. And uh, again, with, with just a couple and a, and a small magazine a couple of years later, and uh, the demand grew exponentially, and the banner came into being. And it was uh, focused initially on, on publishing out-of-print Puritan works. But as you know, today we, we publish living authors as well. <laughs> and uh, although we, we still find the, uh, the Puritans a, a staple oh, of, yeah. of our catalog. Yeah, and it's great to have those books continually in print. Um, and available. It's it an is. Excellent, it's, excellent it's been a ministry. blessing to me in my life, and I've heard countless testimonies of men uh, saying the same thing, that uh, just turning to some of the old classics has, has revitalized ministries, sometimes uh, converted men, and mm. uh, have been a blessing. So it's a privilege to be part of this ministry. In fact, you were, you were telling me earlier that during seminary there was one Banner of Truth title, um, Volume 2 of... John Murray's works? Volume 2 of John Murray, particularly, uh, that's where he, it's a small systematic uh, theology, really. But I, I was educated in an extremely liberal, classically liberal seminary, uh, Knox College at the University of Toronto. And uh, that was a part of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. So as I was studying the assigned readings, my pastor and my father-in-law uh, would both ask me what I was reading, and they would assign me uh, Puritan antidotes or, or the Princeton or Westminster antidotes to those uh, those readings. So, but John Murray became particularly uh, helpful to me just because of his clarity, his precision, and uh, 
he's succinct, which mm. made it when I was studying and, and had to read all the other things, it was helpful to have uh, a succinct resource that I could turn to and, and find help in, in thinking through these things from a confessionally reformed position. That's excellent. No, but so how, how did you find yourself in a liberal college? Did you Were, were you raised in that sort of environment? No, I was raised in a, a Christian home in a, a reformed church and in university began attending a, a Presbyterian church in Canada congregation. Uh, my father-in-law was a Presbyterian church in Canada minister, went to school, went off to university, and after I felt called to the ministry... Uh, if you wanted to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church in Canada, it was required that you attend one of their seminaries. And Knox was the one closest geographically. They were all liberal, so it didn't really matter where I attended. And uh, so I ended up at Knox and uh, spent a, a few years in the Presbyterian Church in Canada, but quickly realized I, I needed to be somewhere else. <laughs> So where are you now? I'm in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian <laughs> Church. <laughs> Just sli slightly different branch. But yeah, a, a secession <laughs> church. And uh, the, uh, the, the ARP remained um, somewhat isolated uh, historically. As a result, remained more confessionally orthodox over the years. And they, they grew and expanded in the, the 70s and 80s, 90s up the East Coast into New England, and then made the leap over into the Maritime Provinces in Canada and now into Ontario. There are 10 congregations in Canada of the ARP, all of them uh, founded since 1991. So. Um, so you mentioned you were raised in a Christian home. Yes. Now, you've, you've actually written a book about um, children in Christian homes. Yes. Uh, from the lips of little ones. From the lips of little ones. It's a study in the, shore, in the catechism for... Very little people is the the subtitle. Um, so what? Why? What should, what, what should we learn about catechizing children? Is that the it, I think it's it's fundamental to uh, teaching our children to think Christianly, to providing them with a, a framework where the the Bible stories they hear, where the the truths that we talk about, where the sermon topics that they hear, they they slot in. They have a a framework. They have a mm. place to put them. They go, oh, I understand why that is there or why he's saying what he's saying. In fact, in my congregation now, I'll uh, sometimes be be quoting for something from the shorter. Now, the children's catechism is condensed further, but some of the questions and answers are the same, like what is sin? And I'll, I'll begin with any want, and I'll hear the little children say, any want of conformity unto or transgression <laughs> of the law of God. So it's a delight to see, I think, the youngest child in our congregation who's memorized the whole 147 questions is, uh, was only four years old. Wow. And the average is, is six. That's incredible. Yeah, it is. It's, it's quite remarkable, and it's a delight. It's one of the highlights of uh, my ministry is to have these kids come into my study. They do it in chunks initially. So every 25 questions, they come and recite the 25, and I've got a goodie box with treats and they can help themselves to uh, a, a little bag of, of gum, gummy bears or something, and, uh, or a, a little car. And uh, so they do 25 at a time. And then when they've recited all the portions, then they come and they do the, the whole thing in a sweep. Perfect. Uh, so um, so I'm, I'm guessing then from how you've just described your sermons that you have kids in church. 
Yes, our, our children are encouraged to be in church from as early as possible. We do have a nursery or a creche, as you call it here, Crush, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, that's for infants. As soon as possible, we encourage parents to begin training their children to sit in worship. And that begins in family worship at home, mm. obviously. Uh, but then encouraging parents to, to bring their children into worship, to have them with with us and to experience worship. The what's what's the fundamental idea behind why you you want to focus I on was, kids? I I served a church at one point. I came to to a church uh, where until the age of fourteen, children were never in worship. They were in Sunday school, and so they were wondering why they were losing this generation. They turned fourteen. Mm. They were expected to sit in church. They'd never sat in church before, and it was completely foreign to them. And they had a, a generation missing. And it, it struck me that as you read Scripture, if you look in the book of Joel, for instance, or, um, yeah, uh, Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, you, you see that the children are included mm-hmm. in the people of God in the public gathering. And uh, we see no principle in the New Testament that children should be excluded somehow from, from the worship of the covenant community. So, uh, we, we believe it's important for them, and it's amazing what they take in. I, I had a mother speak to me just the other day, uh, was telling me that I was reading Ephesians 6, and I said, children, obey your parents and the Lord. And this little voice Did pipes up, up, for this is good. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, from I think he's two and a half. So they, they're part of the worship. They feel part of the worship. I try in my preaching to include them with questions to, to direct, speak directly to them in the, the sermon at some point or at points. And, and the children's message is not a, a separate thing. Yeah. It, I give them a, a pointer, something to look for, something to listen for in the sermon so that when the sermon begins, they're, they're engaged. They're yeah, listening yeah. for what they should be listening for. That's yeah, wonderful. That's really good. Um, and so the, the, one of the things we like to do in this bookcast is we each bring a book along um, and we, we have a chat about them. Now, the books that we brought today are about pastoral ministry. Right. Um, so why don't you tell us about your book, and then I'll tell us a little bit about mine. This book I wish had been available when I was a student. It's by Sinclair Ferguson. And portions of it, of course, were available when I was a student. What Sinclair has done in this book, Dr. Ferguson, uh, <laughs> what he's done in this book is, is collected and revised earlier writings. And... Uh, it's, it's reflecting a biblical vision of what every minister is called to be. And, and Sickler says this book is about the three Johns in his life. Yeah. Uh, John Owen, uh, John Calvin, and John Murray. Mm. And so we, we see the Reformation, we see the Puritan era, and then John Murray representing modernity, I guess. And uh, not philosophically, but in terms yes, of chronology. Time, yeah. Um, so what's... What Dr. Ferguson has done is collected essays, uh, articles, talks that he's done in previous years and all of these things, and he's grouped them thematically, and they provide for us a glimpse into what ministry has been, Mm -hmm. uh, what it ideally ought to be, and how historically that's developed. And it gives us a a wonderful um, overview of, of Christian ministry from those three eras and, and those three writers and, and Dr. Ferguson's own amazing insights into 
those men and their writings, and uh, grouped uh, into uh, some historical vignettes uh, describing each one of those men and their work, then looking at uh, the work of the pastoral ministry in the different periods, and then saying what the pastor is to be as a preacher and as a teacher. And uh, okay. so there are, it's arranged in that way. Very good. And it's extremely helpful. I think every theological student, every pastor would benefit from okay. reading it. We'll dig into some of the uh, insights that you've found in this book in a minute. Okay. It's called Some Pastors and Teachers by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, the one I brought along is called Dear Timothy, Letters on Pastoral Ministry. Uh, it's an edited book, so it's a collection of letters, um, sort of fictional letters. So they're, they're a, a experienced pastors, um, guys like Tom Askell and Mark Dever and mm-hmm. um, people like this, writing to Timothy, okay. the, the pastoral graduate or yes. the young, you know, young pastor in his... Um, First ministry, telling him the things that they want, they think he should really concentrate on the the vital aspects of pastoral ministry. Right, um, and it's written in warm, you know, language as as a an older man writing to a younger, urging him on, wanting him to succeed. Right, um, pointing out these important aspects. So that's it's a I've found it very helpful as I've worked through it. Um, yeah, so. Why don't you tell me, in some pastors and teachers, what are some, some things that, are, that stood out to you that you found to be particularly helpful? I think one of the, the interesting things um, is the description of Calvin's Geneva okay. and, and the pastoral. We, we read a lot about the theological conflicts, uh, historical description of some of those things, but what, uh, what we see here is a little bit of a description of, of how the pastoral care of the Genevan Churches took place, and okay. and that's interesting. So, um, what, what, how did how did Calvin address pastoral care? Well, it was we we talk about team ministries or multi staff ministries, but uh, Geneva took it to a, a a wild degree, I suppose. Uh, they had a, a company of pastors, okay, who rotated among different churches, yeah. preaching and, and dealing with the pastoral all, a parish model, right. Um, around dealing with the, the pastoral issues that might arise and meeting together to confer and discuss. And so this was all at one church? So that Yes, it was a citywide church with a, a large number of pastors who would preach in the various pulpits. Okay, them. okay. So that, that I found to be um, an interesting work. There's been another work uh, also done called, uh, oh, a Company of Pastors in right. Calvin's Geneva, something along those lines. It was a doctoral thesis that's been published develops that even further, which is helpful. I can't remember the author of it. But you get a, a small glimpse of that. If you want to follow it up, you can get the other one. But Dr. Ferguson gives you a glimpse into that here. And, uh, of course, the, the Puritan exposition of the responsibilities of the pastor, emphasizing the pastor as a theologian mm. and the, the necessity of, of being theologically competent as a pastor. Uh, it's not a... We sometimes, as pastors, look up to the theologians in the seminaries and yeah, and yeah. and hold them in on as a an, a higher calling almost. And uh, what what I find encouraging about this book is that we're we're all called yeah. to be theologians, and it's especially important in the pastor because you're the ones who are bringing the word to God's people. Yeah, I like that. So when you say all, you mean all Christians. Are yeah, called to be theologians. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, it's just an an elevation as in the exactly. pastor's role. Yeah. Yeah, John Gerstner had a book, Every Man is a Theologian, mm. um, booklet, really. 
we all are. Uh, theology is really just the study of God. And, and as Christians, we are all called to, to study God's word and, and know who God is. But as pastors, we have a, a special responsibility to accurately present that to God's people, to teach them mm-hmm. the, the character, the person, the work of God. Yeah. So there's sort of two, two aspects going on there. One, and both of which are actually brought out in Dear Timothy as well. Uh, one is the preaching the, the doctrine right. accurately and, and uh, in a way that can be understood. Right. Um, the other is ourselves being taught by and being, being interested in and learning more about God. Right. Um, and one, one of the essays in Dear Timothy talks about how often uh, pastors who are preaching every week and teaching every week, maybe doing Bible study and, and a sermon, doing multiple preparations, they just get stuck in the text that they're doing. Right. Um, and they don't, don't research outside of that and don't you know, delve into God, who God is and what he's done Right. beyond what they're f- currently focused on in the text. And um, so the, the encouragement here is to to be a broader theologian than just expositing those texts each week. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the quality of your preaching and dealing with those texts will, will improve dramatically. Um, preaching, of course, is, is more than just teaching. It's, it's an appeal. It, it has a, a call on the hearts, right. not just the minds, but... If our theology is growing and becoming more and more developed and accurate, it will create a fire in us that we will want yeah, to communicate yeah, like to our people. It's, it's that richness in the, in the, that you see in the text itself. It's, it's bigger and broader than you could imagine, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, was there anything else that stood out? Um, I Just looking at the, the yeah, yeah, table of contents it. here. Um, <laughs> I thought Calvin's work, so often Calvin is, is characterized as a, a cold, clinical, mm-hmm. uh, theological precisionist. He was precise, but he's also known preeminently as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And there, there's an excellent portion in the section on John Calvin on Calvin's doctrine of the Holy Spirit and uh, the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian, and then... Uh, the Spirit's ministry in the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, and, and just tying that together and seeing the importance of a a total Trinitarian emphasis in ministry, and that that I thought was very encouraging. Um, so, what what does that look like then? Um, having a Trinitarian emphasis, what what is? Well, so often our preaching is. Uh, I need to be careful. But a lot of preaching is uh, you need to love Jesus, and, yeah. and because Jesus loves you, you need to be good. And and in fact, I, I've I think I've observed recently that more and more we replace the word God with Jesus. Yes, yes, and the Father is almost alienated. Yeah, uh, except perhaps in our prayer where we you know address him, address yeah. him as Father. But in, in preaching, often missing, and and in Reformed circles for a long time. I think this is changing, but for a long time, certainly when I was first going through ministry, if you emphasized the Holy Spirit too much, you were suspect of being part of some charismatic renewal movement. Yeah. And uh, so you, you were very cautious about that. And, and frankly, in the teaching I received, the, the work of the Holy Spirit was completely ignored. It was something I had to go back to the Puritans for, mm. something I had to uh, look to Calvin 
was, you know, the, the theology I, I was taught was um, Schleiermacher and so on, so experience, but it wasn't an experience engendered by the work of the Holy Spirit in us exactly. It was just this emotional uh, reaction to the charisma of the community. I could yeah, go on yeah, on no, a rant, I agree. But I'm not it's a swing, right? We, like, we're, we humans are pendulums. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's hard to find dead center. That's, that's exactly true. Um, so, what do, what does that understanding of the Holy Spirit's work look like in in the Christian's life? Then, um, how does how does Calvin and I mean Owen talks a lot about the Spirit right. as well? And well, how do they bring that? We out? need to understand that I'm an ordinary means pastor. I I, yeah. I believe in the the use of the ordinary means, the preaching of the word, the use of the sacraments, uh, discipline in the church. But in all of those. Uh, we can exercise them in a in a way that is utterly devoid of the Spirit. And if we do that, they're not going to be effective means. Uh, the ordinary means presumes that we are dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in yeah. applying yeah. those things. So the Spirit apply. You know, our, our preaching has to be Spirit-dependent. We can't rely on technique, emotional manipulation, those things. We need to preach the Word, and we need to do it in a way that is reliant upon the Holy Spirit, mm. consciously preaching, praying that the Spirit would give us uh, unction. Uh, as Ian Murray sometimes says after a, a talk, after a sermon given at a banner conference, he'll, he'll come up and he'll grab you by the arm and he'll go, you are helped. Uh, <laughs> and uh, th- that's, that's high praise for Mr. Murray. And uh, when, when, you, when he says that, you know what he means is that the Spirit was, yes. was working. And uh, surely that's, that's our desire every day. It, it, there yeah. are some services when it's apparent and, and you just know the power of it in your preaching and there are other Sundays when it's painfully absent mm. and, uh, and you need to do some soul searching. Same in the sacraments. We, we talk about the sacraments as a means of grace uh, in my Presbyterian yep. background. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean? What are we saying when we say that? Well, we believe in a real presence, but that, that presence is communicated to us by the work of the Holy Spirit and uh, not transforming the elements or doing anything to the elements, but the Spirit, just as the Spirit empowers the Word, so the, the Spirit empowers these symbols to speak to us and yeah, to yeah. minister to us. So um, we, we need to be yeah, very self-consciously dependent, and the Purins are full of this emphasis. And uh, and you and you know that that overflows into uh, the every everyday Christian life. In yeah. that, I'm I'm very conscious myself of of parenting. Um, and you can you can catechize all you want. You can have all 147 was it? Yeah. <laughs> questions remembered and at the age of three, if you want, and yeah. you can have a, your kids do all the right things. But if the spirit is not working in and through those things, it all comes to nothing. Absolutely. Uh, changed hearts is what's required, and only the Spirit. It's one of the catechism questions. Only the Spirit can regenerate a sinner's heart. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we we need to be ordinary means, uh, but, yeah. but utterly conscious and dependent upon the work of the Spirit. And and actually, even in um in just simple sanctification, and yes. s- stopping yourself from sinning and and not sinning That's anymore. Right. I was reading John Calvin's little book on the Christian life, which is yeah. an excerpt from his, from his institutes. But um, one of the things that struck me in there, oddly enough, is how much of the Christian life is simply listening and obeying. Yes, that's and right. Just, 
It seems, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, and and it's just because we are so governed by what we want and what we feel and what we desire, and and we feel at these times when we're tempted that we can't do anything else, or, yeah. or at least we don't want to. But yeah, it's so much of it is spirit help me now. Yes, because I've seen what your word says. Yeah, please help me to do this. Yeah, I'm united to Christ. Yeah, and because I'm united to Christ, I have the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit it will enable me to say no to this temptation. Yeah. And we need to remind ourselves of that. The devil likes to tell us that our temptation is unique. Uh, <laughs> somehow that we're being uniquely tempted. So, And uh, we need to realize that we're not unique. The Apostle Paul says, you know, no temptation is exactly. befalling you except which is common. Yeah. Um, so he'll also provide a way out. Very good. Well, I think that's all we have time for. It's okay. been a real joy chatting with you about these, uh, these topics. My pleasure. Thanks for time. Uh, some pastors and teachers and dear Timothy, well worth a while in digging into. And thanks for tuning in to the Reformers Bookcast. You can get these books and, and Jeff's book at reformers.com.au and tune in next month. 